Section 67 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, an Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases, by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Female Poisoners, Part 3. The Execution of a Poisoner. On the morning of June 25, 1889, Mrs. Sarah Jane Whiteling was executed at Moyamensing Prison, Philadelphia, for the murder, by arsenical poisoning, of her husband, John Whiteling, age 36, March 20, 1888, her daughter Bertha, age 9, April 24, and her son Willie, aged 3, May 26. Mr. Whiteling's life was insured for $230, Bertha's for $122, Willie's for $47, a total of $399. For this paltry sum, this unwomanly woman sacrificed the lives of husband and children, according to her own free and full confession, with calculations so cold and purpose so deliberate that suspicion was naturally aroused as to her sanity but the carefully conducted examinations of the experts showed beyond question that the woman was sane and the condition of the brain as revealed by an autopsy after execution confirmed their conclusions in spite of the proved and acknowledged enormity of this woman's offence the usual enginery of morbid sentimentality was set to work to save her from the gallows the plea that a woman ought not to be hung even though by such crimes she unsexes herself was pushed and pressed to the last degree by the sentimentalists who expend upon murderers the sympathy that ought to go to the murdered to their untiring interference with the course of justice was added the equally exhaustless ingenuity of criminal lawyers a class of wranglers and obstructives whose defiant interference with the course of justice is one of the great scandals of the age but beyond a short reprieve by Governor Beaver, all organized pressure upon the Board of Pardons failed to extort clemency, and the law was allowed to pursue its course. The case was noteworthy because Mrs. Whiteling is the first of the females who have resorted to homicide for the purpose of defrauding life companies to expiate her crime on the gallows. Even the number of male murderers who have paid the extreme penalty is sadly disproportionate to the number of those who have escaped. They can be counted on one's fingers, while a score of known murderers, to say nothing of those unknown except to omniscience, have, in one way or another, managed to evade the demands of justice. In at least three or four cases where men and women combined in planning and executing their murderous work, the women were worse impersonations of evil passion than the men, just as Lady Macbeth was more unscrupulous than her husband. The case of Mrs. Whiteling may serve as a warning hereafter to criminals of her own sex that they must not look to sex itself for immunity from the consequences of their actions. A Family Slaughterer The history of the Somerville, Massachusetts poisoner, Mrs. Sarah J. Robinson, shows the successful removal of her entire family before she was convicted in due process of law. Her victims were seven in number. Moses, her husband, Lizzie J., her daughter, Willie J., her son, Prince Arthur Freeman, her brother-in-law, his son, Thomas, Mrs. P. A. Freeman, her sister, and Oliver Sleeper, who boarded in her house and is supposed to have been a distant relative. 
Sleeper's death was the first, Moses Robinson's second, and Mrs. Freeman's, whose death occurred in February 1885, the third. Previous to Prince A. Freeman's death, Mrs. Robinson had had his life insurance made over to her. In June 1885, P. A. Freeman died, his infant child having died in the meantime. Thomas A. Freeman, a son of P. A. Freeman, for whom there was the sum of $2,000 in trust, died a short time afterwards. Then followed the death of Lizzie J. Robinson, and finally that of Willie J. Robinson. As the amount of the claim in each case was paid, the money seemed to stimulate the fiend to fresh exertion. With the exception of Oliver Sleeper, the calculating assassin confined her operations to the members of her own family successively. Mrs. Robinson was first tried for the murder of her daughter, but escaped the penalty through the disagreement of the jury. She was then tried for the murder of her brother-in-law, P. A. Freeman, and found guilty in the first degree. The usual interposition of criminal lawyers and of morbid sentimentality saved the inhuman wretch from the gallows. Another Massachusetts Case Holyoke furnished a second edition of the foregoing family destroyer in the person of Mrs. Lizzie Brennan, who was arrested at her home on the 26th of May, 1889, on suspicion of having caused the death of her husband and two sons by mixing arsenic with their food. The Brennans had six children, and Mrs. Brennan succeeded in insuring the lives of them all, including herself and her husband, for sums ranging from $300 to $2,000, the policies being made payable to herself. The husband, Michael Brennan, died in the preceding July under suspicious circumstances. James Brennan, a son, died suddenly about six weeks before the woman's arrest. She supposed his life insurance had been increased, but on claiming it at his death, she found the increase had been made by mistake in the policy of his brother, Thomas. It was the ill-fated Thomas's turn next, and he followed speedily. He had been taken violently sick about two weeks before his death, and went into the country where he rallied. On returning home, he was taken sick again, and died in great agony. Besides such destroyers of the home circle, Lucretia Borgia might pose as a saint. A Princeton Story The trial of Mrs. Mattie C. Shan of Princeton, New Jersey, charged with the murder of her twenty-year-old son, John F. Shan, by slow poison, was commenced on the 8th of August, 1893, and ended on the 19th with a verdict of acquittal. The alleged motive was to obtain the amount of insurance, $2,000, upon her son's life. Since the accused was freed, it seems hardly worthwhile to rehearse the details of the dismal story. The case is added to the long list of those in which the prosecuting officers, with apparently abundant testimony within reach, failed to convict. Whatever the basis of the procedure of the state in the course of suspicion, arrest, imprisonment, indictment, and trial, the jury could directly reach no other conclusion. If the woman was guilty and yet allowed to escape, no fault can reasonably rest with the jury. To those, however, who sift and probe and dissect with the trained eye and hand of the inquisitor who is familiar with the varied forms of criminal assault upon life insurance companies, there are always diagnostic signs which, to them, are sufficiently clear and indicative. These are often passed over lightly by the prosecutors for the state, or twisted out of their significance by the lawyers for the defense, 
and criminal lawyers, as we know, are not overscrupulous. In the present case, for example, the audacious scheme by which analysis of the alimentary canal was precluded was of itself conclusive. John died on Monday night, and on the night following, three men entered the house and disemboweled the body. It was a bungling piece of work, but the object was accomplished, the removal of the digestive tract. The analytical chemists were therefore confined to the kidneys and the brain in their search for the bichloride of mercury with which John had been poisoned. Mrs. Shan's patched-up account, on the witness-stand, of the nocturnal visit was ingenious enough to create doubt in the mind of the average juryman. But those who have been drilled to weigh and measure with dispassionate scales attach to such explanation or plea simply what it is actually worth, only this and nothing more. The reporters, with their usual froth and gush, had much to say about the innocent looks, the evident refinement, the tasteful dress, the admirable behavior, etc., of the prisoner. The public was treated to the same sort of nauseating stuff in the case of Mrs. Victor in Ohio, of Mrs. Wharton in Baltimore, of Mrs. Maybrick in London. These effusive writers appear to forget what Hamlet has told them. The devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. The best that can be said of such women is that if their guilt was not proved, neither was their innocence established. Fixed the husband, but failed with the son. The widow Vandegrift at Mount Holly, New Jersey, undertook to put her son, Frank C. Norman, out of the way, in order to realize the amount of insurance on his life, in the early months of 1890. Her favorite drug was croton oil. Fortunately for the young man, Dr. W. E. Hall, the attending physician, intervened in time to save his life. The gist of Dr. Hall's testimony, which was direct and pointed, was as follows. Norman's symptoms were those arising from croton oil poisoning. No disease that he knew of was accompanied by the same group of symptoms. The medicines prescribed for the patient were cast aside by Mrs. Vandegrift, who dosed him with senna and croton oil. She told the doctor he ate two dozen lemons and smoked twenty cigars a day, and that it was this that caused his illness. Norman denied the statement. Mrs. Vandegrift told the witness that her son's illness was a great disadvantage to her, as she was to be married to a Philadelphia gentleman on June 1st and go to Europe, but now it would have to be postponed. It was about this time Dr. Hall discovered that Mrs. Vandegrift was buying croton oil at a number of drugstores in Burlington, and he set a trap, he said, and caught her. On being accused of administering the poison, she denied it, but said she had bought some to remove her corns. When she was threatened with arrest, she begged the doctor not to have her locked up, and consented to allow her son to be removed to a hospital. Afterward, she withdrew her consent, and threatened to have Dr. Hall and Dr. Gaunt arrested for defamation of character, whereupon the latter said with a smile, Do so, and I will then show that you not only tried to kill your son in order to secure the insurance of $14,000 on his life, but that you also did kill your husband, Joseph Vandegrift, in 1887, by means of croton oil, and he told his friends just before his death that he knew you were killing him by inches. On hearing this statement, the doctor continued, her son left the house, saying he was now satisfied that his mother had been trying to murder him ever since he returned from Philadelphia. The Risk of Enlisting Connivance 
Mrs. Mary M. Cawford of Leadville, Colorado, age 35, conspired with her husband's younger brother, J.G. Cawford, age 59, to ensure the life of her husband, Hans, then poison him, and, with the proceeds, move to Nebraska and buy a farm. Three policies were obtained, two in cooperatives and one in the travelers, to the amount of $5,500, $1,000 in the Rocky Mountain Insurance and Savings, $2,000 in the Great Western Mutual Association, and $2,500 in the travelers. The parties were all Danes, and were so ignorant and debased that the circumstances lose much of the interest that would otherwise attach to the case. Mrs. Cawford approached a dentist, Dr. Rose, and made a confidant of him, announcing her purpose and offering him a share in the plunder to the extent of $300 for an effective poison to be prepared by him. Rose held successful interviews with the woman in order to entrap her the more completely, and finally arranged to conceal witnesses of the transactions between them. Captain C. H. Perkins, a detective, and Mr. Jacob Bernheimer, the insurance agent, were so screened by a partition in Rose's office that they could see as well as hear all that was done. The woman was allowed to return home with a harmless liquid, and with directions for administering the pretended poison. That evening the guilty pair were arrested and lodged in jail to await judicial procedure, and Dr. Rose was credited with excellent management of the case as an amateur detective. End of section 67.